Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Let's begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we've had a long and beautiful day uh, studying and reflecting on the work of Pope Francis. We ask you to continue to guide us as we reflect tonight and as this conference, this symposium continues. And I let, Lord, I ask you to, to bless my words tonight that uh, I would speak what you would have me do and lead us to a deeper knowledge and love of your plan. We ask this through Christ and Lord, Amen. Amen. Mary, our mother, pray, pray for us. And St. Martin of Tours, pray, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. Um, thanks. I, I'd like to begin with a, a simple proposition. God is a purpose. God is a plan in raising up Pope Francis in, in, by his election by the College of Cardinals. Sometimes you, some people seem to doubt that this was God's plan, uh, <laughs> you know, but when I look back, I'm going to try to keep this sort of light tonight in one way because we've had a long day. But when I look back as a church historian and an expert on Vatican II, I look at the popes when they were elected. I think of John the Twenty-Third when he was elected. You know, who would have expected he would call the Second Vatican Council, and how controversial that was at the time. Even his closest advisors thought this was really unnecessary or ill-advised. And then the council itself brought all sorts of turmoil into the church. And, and yet he's a saint, and he's one of the most beloved of all popes of, of history. And yet you could say two months or, or two or three years into his pontificate, people might have been wondering, does John Twenty-Third really know what he's doing, calling, getting this crazy council off the ground? And then his successor, um, uh, Paul VI, um, some people thought when he was elected, oh, he's a little, he was sort of a moderate and maybe a little bit too liberal. Then after Vatican II, people said he was a react, or after Humana Vitae, people saw him as a reactionary. And wasn't, so, you know, he was, some people didn't understand his appreciation of modern art. But so Paul VI, and, you know, during the, the very difficult time after the council, many trials, and Paul VI wasn't always understood or respected. Uh, either, and yet he's a blessed now and respected by the church. And then we look at after the, the death of John Paul I, many were stunned by the election of the first Italian, non Italian pope for, for centuries. And, you know, some were a little disturbed about this strange new teaching about human sexuality, which came to be called theology of the body. And some people uh, wondered about, you know, how he was conducting papal affairs. So even the great John Paul the Great had people who maybe at the beginning of his pontificate wondered, where was this, where is this going? Uh, pope Benedict, some people had fears, oh, the Panzer Cardinal, you know, the, was a defender of doctrine, would everything be locked down or something? And, and, and uh, many people, you know, didn't, didn't really appreciate or understand his, his great wisdom as well. Some people still would say, well, you know, people think the Novus Ordo, uh, you know, that the extraordinary form is really an ordinary form, and he, this is all to, a plot to overthrow the uh, liturgical reform and renewal of Vatican II. So you still have uh, our Pope Emeritus under, you know, with people wondering about him. So I'm saying, I'm trying to put Pope Francis in a context because, you know, people say, well, we wonder 
what, what Pope Francis is really up to. And, and it's a legitimate question. But I'm just trying to say it's, he's not the first pope that after his first three or four years, people are, are wondering, you know, is, is, is this really uh, where we should be going? And my suggestion is how we look with, with those who have misgivings about the pope and how do we view him. My simple suggestion is we look at it with faith. Trust in the Lord that, um, that, that he is a different sort of pope. We'll talk about this tonight, and we have been. But uh, we're trusting that, that this is, he is different, and, and yet each of these popes have been different, and they're all part of God's plan to advance the church. Um, and we ask, why did, well, why did the College of Cardinals elect him? When we think back, you know, here they saw in uh, this Cardinal Jorge Mario Bergoglio a man of humility, you know, he, he, they looked at him, you know, they knew he was a cardinal of, archbishop of one of the largest dioceses in the world, and yet, you know, he lived in a little up his own apartment, cooked for himself, took public transport to work. He impressed the College of Cardinals simply because he was a man of, of deep humility and deep pastoral concern. You know, his, this is, none of this was new about the things he's been saying in the papacy about reaching out to those on the periphery. You know, this is what he was doing for years as, as a priest and, and, and especially as bishop. And, uh, you know, and it reminded, it's not surprising he took the name Francis because, you know, like Francis of Assisi, in a sense, he was an ordinary man who felt a call to live more of a radically simple and poor life in the midst of a relatively, as Francis of Assisi, in a relatively affluent society of the time. But Francis, his conversion was one to live simply, simply and poorly and to reach out for the poor. And that's a lot harder to do when you're an archbishop or certainly as pope, but we can appreciate uh, Pope Francis has made a lot of efforts to, as much as he can, still be a pope among the people. A lot of, in, in some ways, John XXIII was like that. He would go take walks in the neighborhood, but, uh, you know, and Johnny Walker, they jo joked about him because he'd turn up in unexpected places. But Pope Francis is reaching out. You know, he's visiting those in the prisons and, you know, places of natural and human disaster, such as uh, Lampedusa and other places. He wants to make it clear as much as he can as Pope. He wants to be present. So he's trying to live what he's preaching is the simple point there. And that's why the cardinals elected him. They, they felt like maybe this is God's time for this particular type of pope. They, it shouldn't have been a surprise that he's a man who has this radical emphasis on mercy and in the poor. Um, another thing that, you know, again, sometimes we, we wonder about how he's conducting things. And we sort of underestimate the fact that he is the man of a totally different culture and experience than all the European popes who preceded him. You know, we can say, oh, yes, he's the first pope from the Western Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere. But sometimes, somehow many people expect him to just to view the world as the same way as all the European popes, you know. Um, of course, he is also a Jesuit with a different spiritual background and training than any previous pope. So I, I was talking with uh, Dr. Lombardi, and she was going to make a little comment tomorrow, not to steal her thunder, but she, she says, my, my own background would remind me of some of the ways Pope Francis is. I'll let her talk about that tomorrow. But uh, yeah, he's a, he's a man with, uh, with a different cultural background, so maybe we shouldn't expect him to view the world and uh, to approach his papacy the same way, because he is a man of his own, his own particular culture and, and upbringing. Um, he does, some people are, are confused or troubled about his approach. He does seem more concerned about 
compassionate pastoral practice than doctrinal precision and correctness. Um, and he also, even preaching about everyday temptations or struggles, you know, gossip, judgment of others, a false veneer of religiosity, hypocrisy, uh, those are th not themes that were the, the, the part and parcel of a lot of the homilies of, of our more of recent popes. And yet, um, you know, as we, we could say, I, I think St. Francis, his namesake, would, might, I think would have sort of a, is up there approving of that, that this is, this is a simple message that is a struggle, things that we all struggle with, if we're really honest about it, you know? So he, he wants to address these things. And uh, he's not, I, I don't, I'm sure he's not ashamed with anyone who would say, oh, you're not really profound theologically here, just talking about gossiping hypocrisy when he says, the, I probably think these are the things that people struggle with, all of us. So they need to be addressed. Uh, also, one thing that's a little different about him from his background, which I think is a real plus, I'm not going to dwell on this, but his mode of ecumenical outreach, he, he has a deep commitment to Christian unity, but he's also reaching out to groups who have never been really addressed by popes before, re reached out to specifically uh, Pentecostal and evangelical Christians. I mean, he's continuing to reach out to the Orthodox and mainline Protestants, but because of you know, his background in Buenos Aires, it was Pentecostals and evangelicals that you know, he, he phoned bonds with them there, and he's continuing uh, to do that there. So he's sort of got a new dimension of the ecumenical outreach. So bottom line of my introduction, he's a different sort of pope, and and I think we should be surprised if he weren't uh, that. Anyway, um, I'm going into my, uh, Dr. Kempton mentioned my book, you know, where I focus on some early themes of his pontificate, uh, the subtitle, Prayer, Poverty, and Joy, which are sort of three evident common characteristics of Pope Francis with St. Francis of Assisi, his love of poverty, prayer, joy. Uh, but tonight I'd like to focus on some of the other themes that have sort of emerged in his pontificate as, uh, as being uh, uh, other important themes and say a few words about them. Oh, before I went on, I thought I would just, you know, sort of the way he is, um, gets these sound bites and sometimes wonder where he's coming from. This was just sort of an example that struck me. I was just in class the other day showing my uh, freshman class uh, this Ducat. Uh, it's the, basically the youth catechism. It has UCAT, but this is DUCAT, what to do. And on the back cover, it says a quote from Pope Francis. A Christian who in these times is not a revolutionary is no Christian. Now one could look at that, oh my gosh, is this liberation theology? Um, and I, it was interesting. I, I looked up <clears throat> the full quote of that. He said, in this day and age, unless Christians are revolutionaries, they're not Christians. They must be revolutionaries through grace, grace itself, which the Father gives us through the crucified, dead, and risen Jesus Christ, makes us revolutionaries because he changes the heart. So, you know, so it's a lot different than what you get the impression from that quote of we all have to be revolutionaries. So just again, uh, sometimes to get him in full context, uh, you, you get a better picture. Uh, the themes I'd like to look at are um, mercy, marriage and family, uh, creation slash ecology, and evangelization. I'm going to try to go a little more briefly than I had planned because many of these themes have already been addressed by our previous speakers. So uh, I'm going to say a few things, but I'll try not. I, I'm looking at this talk as 
uh, we used to have a pastor who had an approach um, after we had sort of a, a conference, he'd say, I'm going to get up and gather the fragments, sort of, sort of collect some. So I'm going to refer to a few of the other talks in the midst of this. Um, first of all, um, we'll look at mercy, because, of course, that's a key theme. Um, a key moment of St. Francis's Assisi's full conversion to Christ, as you may know, was when he was given the grace to reach out and embrace a leper, a class of persons who previously St. Francis found repulsive, as you know, and avoided because of their disease. But Francis observed a miraculous change in himself that, as he said, what was previously had been bitter to him, God made sweet. Thereafter, his ministry and those of his followers was to live among the poor and the infirmed and to reach out to others on the margins of society. So mercy is certainly, I like to make links between St. Francis and Pope Francis, and certainly the area of mercy is one where St. Francis is one who lived mercy. Um, Pope Francis, likewise, as I've said, has, uh, has insisted that our, our mission as Christians, and especially that of pastors, is to be among the people, the famous phrase of having the odor or smell of the sheep. And certainly, as I said, St. Francis and his followers uh, lived that out themselves. Uh, this is more difficult for a pope to do, but as I've said, he's made a real effort, having weekday mass in a more public site, the guest house of Casa Santa Marta, visiting prisons, care facilities, etc. And the image of the good shepherd has, of course, been very important for him, the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to seek out the one strain. It seems to exemplify Pope Francis as apostolate. Um, I'm a great devotee of Pope St. John Paul II. Uh, in fact, you know, I felt like he, he began his pontificate the same year I started teaching here in 1978. So for many years, he was my pope. I've imbibed his teaching. But, and of course, Saint, as we all know, Pope uh, St. John the, uh, Paul II spoke so much about mercy. And yet, I must acknowledge that it's really Pope Francis who has led me to examine my own life more closely and ask myself the question how I might reach out better and more fully to those on the periphery in a more concerted and personal way. It, it's more like, um, uh, even though Pope John, uh, Pope John Paul has said that for many years in many of his writings, uh, Pope Francis really got me looking at myself with his insistence on we all are called to reach out to the periphery. And uh, Dr. Martin mentioned that last night where he and his wife started working at a, uh, and, and for Vincent de Paul and seeing, you know, this is something that it's convicting me. Um, and uh, I guess one, one moment that uh, helped me, I was going on a long road trip uh, a, a month or so ago, and I went to the public library to get a CD to listen to, and the public library had the Pope's uh, book, Name of God is, of, is Mercy, on CD. It's great to see a public library that, that has the Pope's. And it was, again, just, just the occasion of listening to that, um, CD, that CD of this book, uh, the name of God is mercy was was very uh, helpful for me in, as as a sort of an examination of conscience. I just want to say one quote from that a book that was on the CD um, about you know sometimes people might say well he he maybe sort of overemphasizes mercy or exaggerates it. Um, he tells a story in the book that I think is very beautiful. He tells he tells frequent stories and usually by the way when people say, when he makes some of these statements that seem like doctrinal statements that seem a little extreme, he's usually doing this 
to, to illustrate, it's a principle that he actually sees in an experience he's had in his life. And sometimes if you apply sort of his principle to try to apply it to every circumstance, it doesn't work. But then when you hear, oh, in that context, that, that what he's saying makes some sense. So for example, um, he's telling a little uh, story about a Capuchin priest, younger than I, with a ministry in Buenos Aires. One day he came to see me and wanted to talk. He said, I need your help. I'm always, I always have so many people at the confessional, people of all walks of life, some humble, some less humble, but many priests too. I forgive a lot, and sometimes I have doubts. I wonder if I have forgiven too much. We talked about mercy, and I asked him what he did when he had these doubts. This is what he said. I go to our chapel and stand in front of the tabernacle and say to Jesus, Lord, forgive me if I have forgiven too much, but you're the one who gave me the bad example. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's a great story. Okay. Anyway, um, I, when he talked about, of course, Jesus as the embodiment of mercy, and I just wanted to quote from his Bull of Indiction for the Year of Mercy about Jesus. Everything of him speaks of mercy. Nothing in, him, nothing in him is devoid of compassion. In the parables devoted to mercy, Jesus reveals the nature of God as that of a father who never gives up until he has forgiven the wrong and overcome rejection with compassion and mercy. In them, that is Jesus's mercy parables, we find the core of the gospel and of our faith, because mercy is presented as a force that overcomes everything, filling the heart with love and bringing consolation through pardon. So, and, and then he goes on and uh, calls us all to mercy. We are called to show mercy because mercy has first been shown to us. Pardoning offenses becomes the clearest expression of merciful love, and for us Christians, it is an, an imperative from which we cannot excuse ourselves. Mercy is the very foundation of the church's life. All of her pastoral activity should be caught up in the tenderness she makes present to believers. Nothing in her preaching and in her witness to the world can be lacking in mercy. The church's very credibility is, is seen in how she shows merciful and compassionate love. Then he continues later, the time has come for the church to take up the joyful call to mercy once more. It is time to return to the basics and to bear the weaknesses and struggles of our brothers and sisters. Mercy is the force that reawakens us to new life and instills in us the courage to look at the future with hope. In the, he had mentioned there how our present society is almost like forgotten mercy, and I think we can see that pretty clearly around us. But we, it now is our time. If we want good news for the society, the, the good news, the joy of mercy. Then he says, the, in the present day, as the church is charged with the task of the new evangelization, the theme of mercy needs to be proposed again and again with new enthusiasm and renewed pastoral action. It is absolutely essential for the church and for the credibility of her message that she must live and testify to mercy. It always gets back to that thing about the credibility of our message. Her language and her gestures must transmit mercy so as to touch the hearts of all people and inspire them once more to find the road that leads to the Father. Um, you know, of course, in so much of what Pope Francis is saying, he's building on Pope St. John the, Paul II, uh, especially, and also Pope uh, Benedict, as Dr. Martin pointed out in his teaching on evangelization, he builds so much on Paul VI. Uh, of course, in Divis and Misericordiae, 
uh, Pope John Paul II was saying a lot of the same thing. A quote that he actually uh, ends a section of um, Misericordia Voltus with a quote from Pope St. John Paul, a short quote here. The church lives an authentic life when she professes and proclaims mercy, the most stupendous attribute of the creator and of the redeemer. And when she brings people close to the sources of the savior's mercy, and, and okay, it, it is the most authentic thing when she bring in, brings people close to the sources of the savior's mercy, of which she, the church, is the trustee and dispenser. Notice in that quote, John Paul says, the church lives an authentic life when she professes and proclaims mercy. And of course, St. John Paul II was tireless in this. And I think uh, Dr. Echeverria talked about, you know, he ran through, you know, the Vivis and Misericordiae, canonizing St. Faustina, promoting the devotion of uh, divine mercy, establishing Mercy Sunday. And Pope Francis certainly affirms all this. He, he advocates the same devotion. But what's different? I think the emphasis is he emphasizes living mercy. Not that John Paul didn't, but for, for, for Pope Francis, it's pretty clear. It's, it's, it's not just a devotion to mercy. What he's calling for is it's got to be lived. Uh, and, and even for the church, for him, this means reexamining her practices and policies. And this is where people get uncomfortable. But I think he's got to be consistent. He has to do that. If he's calling us all as for an individual examination of conscience about how we're being merciful, I mean, isn't it appropriate that he's asking the church to have somewhat of a reexamination of conscience about our policies, our practices? Okay, he's raising an important question, whether or not you like his answers all the time. I think that, that that's something that he's trying to do. Um, and... Um, and uh, and sometimes, you know, he does, he's not afraid to bring up examples, like in the face, name of God of mercy, is examples of where mercy has not been shown by pastors. And he's saying, you know, this is what drives people away from the church or alienates them when mercy is not shown. Um, so he's urging all people, uh, pastors and the common people, all of it, we, as, especially as followers of Christ, to reach out in mercy in a personal way. And especially through those corporal and spiritual works of mercy that are so much part of the Catholic tradition. You know, I, I don't remember recent popes so much going back to those corporal and spiritual works of mercy quite as much as he has. Um, and of course, St. Francis would certainly affirm this in his ministry. I mean, Francis of Assisi lived the mercy in his ministry to the lepers and the outcasts. I think um, Pope Fran I think St. Francis would would also be pleased in the way Pope Francis preaches about the application of mercy, as I said, in everyday life, in the down-to-earth way. Stop judging others. Don't gossip. Root out jealousy and envy. Um, I, I think uh, when Dr. Lombardi today, she pointed out these things are related to mercy because they're sort of obstacles to mercy. If, you're, if you have these things, you're judging, gossiping, jealousy, envy. Instead of that, we're focusing on ourselves, and we're not. They become obstacles to mercy. And, and to me, it's a lot of the echoes of a lot of St. Paul's, uh, later part of St. Paul's letters and, and Perennis' moral exhortation, where he ends letters just, just reminding people of the basic, you know, how do we live the Christian life? So this is not just the tradition of, it, it's something that I think Pope Francis draws from, from Scripture, too. Um, okay, so... Mercy and charity, like St. Teresa of Calcutta has shown us, it begins at home. 
Uh, it begins in our daily lives. Uh, Pope Francis also speaks out bluntly against uh, Christians involved in corrupt or violent organizations and activities. Um, he also knows that he has to root out these common vices with, even within the church, how he's trying to reform the curia. But he first begins with himself. You know, remember he was asked early in his pontificate, who is Jorge Mario Barolio? His answer, a sinner. He recognizes himself first as a sinner in, needs of God, in need of God's mercy and of our prayers. He was always asking, pray for me. Um, it reminded me of St. Francis's response to someone who asked him why he was so blessed and blessed and virtuous. Francis replied, frankly, if God had given the graces he had re I have received to anyone else, he would be much holier and virtuous than I. So, and, and I think Francis was believed that. He was being honest. The holier you are, the more you realize your sinfulness. And I think Pope Francis is also very much aware of his own need for mercy. Um, I, I'm going to sort of abbreviate. I, I had a whole section on marriage and family, and um, I want to say a few things about that. Um, uh, first of all, just it's interesting. Some people say that, well, there's no parallel between Francis of Assisi and Pope Francis in this area. You know, Francis wasn't really, you know, didn't say much about married life. But on the other hand, uh, I'm reminded of all the married couples and married people at the time of St. Francis who were so impressed by his way of life that they wanted to imitate him as well, and hence the birth of the Third Order, followers of Francis who lived uh, his values as, as fully as they could in the married state. So St. Francis did have an impact on even on uh, married couples, and we even have uh, great saints who are Third Order Franciscans. Um, uh, Pope Francis, in his teaching on the family, we always do have to recall that he is building on the previous teaching, beginning with Vatican II, uh, uh, first chapter of part two of Gaudium et Spes on dignity of the marriage and family. He's building on Pope St. John Paul II, who called a synod on the family, which resulted in Familiaris Consortio, and also in his 1994 letter to families, and even his theology of the body. Now, uh, it's striking, you know, John Paul II called a synod on the family. Pope Francis has called two synods on the family, an extraordinary synod and another synod on the family. At least you could say this is certainly a top priority for him. Again, we could get into the points of is it clear what's being presented about the family, but I, I think it's absolutely clear that Pope Francis realizes that this is something that really needs to be addressed by the church. And the way he has done it is calling these synods. And so he realizes that he needs consultation. He's invited the bishops of the world to, to real, and to consult their people and to really, now people could say, you know, some of these synods seem like a free-for-all. There were all sorts of conflicting opinions and divisions being created. But, and Pope Francis seemed to be approving it, and he was, because he said, I need to hear what the bishops are saying. I need to hear what the people of God are saying. We can't deal with the problem unless we have some honest and frank discussion about what these issues are. So sometimes that makes us uncomfortable when we hear you know, the conflict among bishops and cardinals. But, but um, I think his pastoral approach is it's better to get it out in the open. Now, of course, um, I, I attended in this room a wonderful talk today by uh, 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 Father Manning from, Reverend Dr. Um, Manning from Walsh College. He was talking about how this might apply to Newman, Cardinal Newman's consulting the laity on matters of doctrine. 
one people one one thing he observed was of course even when you find out what the people think and what bishops think that's only a barometer that you do need in other words it shows you where you're at but we do need some discernment about what we do with all this and so amoris laetitia is you know what the pope is supposed to be doing in the in the tradition of many of these post synodal uh, papal documents, which are dozens of them after synods, the Pope sort of tries to, to gather all those things and bring it together into a cohesive whole. I think that, you know, when people look at this document, first of all, the normal thing I've heard say is, well, most of it is really good, but this one chapter or this one line, you know, it's got some problems. And, and uh, first of all, I think maybe we don't give enough appreciation to all the really good things in that encyclical. Some people are saying this will be forgotten or be written off. But uh, like in Dr. Lombardi's talk to this afternoon, remember, uh, he, you know, he's bringing to light many of the problems of uh, marriage comes from lack of preparation and the Pope, all that she said this afternoon, which I won't repeat. But uh, he's calling attention to many things that could improve marriage. And as I was talking to my wife the other day, uh, Nancy, she was saying, you know, the Pope in this encyclical, he raises the bar high. It seems like Pope John Paul did, but he, he's saying, he's presenting the, even if you call it an ideal, it is an ideal, it's, it's, but it, as we've heard from the Archbishop, it's a realizable ideal, but he's proclaiming clearly what marriage is and ought to be. Now, when you get to that chapter eight about, you know, the people in irregular marriage situations, you know, we can see that this is a work in progress, you know, and some people are dissatisfied with some of the things. That I remember we, we actually was um, this summer, one of my former students who is now was a master's student here and got it, went on and got a doctorate in theology and is teaching uh, at a Catholic uh, university. He visited my house, my, my colleague Petra, Willie came, bring him, brought him over to my house, and, he, and we were just chatting, and he was saying, well, you know, the, what do you think of Amaris Laetitia? I said, I'd, I'd love this document, but footnote 351. And so it was like, oh, really? And I, was, I didn't say this out loud. I was trying to, I couldn't process it, but I was thinking, are you going to reduce this whole document to this footnote and <laughs> sort of throw the whole thing out? And okay. We gotta we gotta look at everything in the document, but if that's sort of let that's not be we have to be a little careful of what Pope Francis warns against the scholars of the law who you know will will try to you know strain out the gnat and swallow the camel, but we do have to understand this. It, it's interesting about that the point of interpreting Amoris Laetitia. Uh, Dr. Martin Ralph Martin uh, shortly before the conference he uh, he actually called to my attention. A, um, a recent uh, statement by a number of uh, Catholic theologians uh, that was issued. It was uh, in, including among these, there are eight theologians, I believe, maybe six, who published a recent statement entitled Interpreting Amoris Laetitia Within the Catholic Tradition. And two of the people who did this were uh, a good friend, Father Thomas Winandy, OFM Cap, who um, has been on the doctrinal commission in the, of the U.S. bishops for a number of years. He also taught here at Franciscan in the 80s, so he's a, a good friend of the university. And another of the designers of this was Dr. John Grabowski of Catholic University of America, who got his B.A. in theology here in the eight, early 80s. So again, a lot of Steubenville connections. It's a good document, and I guess it's a sign of the times when Catholic theologians have to, basically, the title, Interpreting Amoris Laetitia Within the Catholic Tradition, 
Actually, this document is really focused on explaining why it is necessary for a papal document to be read in light of Catholic tradition. But that was actually the main thrust of this nine-page single-spaced statement. And by the way, it's a very excellent statement. But I think it can be assumed that Pope Francis understands this principle, that he wants his teaching to be understood in light of Catholic tradition. And in fact, um, just in case you know, some people might not see his document in the proper context, these theology professors in this statement twice refer to the situation, to what Pope Francis says about the situation of divorced and remarried Catholics and the disciplines that apply to them. They, they note that uh, really Pope Francis clarifies that in Amoris Laetitia in article number 300, which I'm not going to quote, but just to quote the statement of these very solid theologians. They said, Pope, quote, Pope Francis himself clearly states in Amoris Laetitia that the church's teaching on marriage has not been changed and the church's canonical norms and rules have not been abrogated. See number 300 of Amoris Laetitia. So these theologians authoring this statement recognize, they, they believe that the problem of of, that this so-called problem of a contradiction between Catholic canon law and, and Pope Francis's teaching is really um, not a, not, does not really exist. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to give a flippant answer that um, I'm not saying that Pope Francis in, and future, you know, in future documents or future popes might not be able to grapple with this and express it more clearly and precisely. But I think we should at least recognize Pope Francis is taking a bold step and making a start. As I said earlier, at least he's bringing up this question. And it is the question, how do we accompany, to use his word, accompaniment, how do we accompany people who are in these irregular situations? You know, how do we show them mercy? And um, you know, I, I think that um, we, this, this is the question he's raising. And I, I don't think maybe the document gives a final solution, but at least he's bold enough and courageous enough to say, you know, we have to re-examine this. And sometimes, you know, there are general criticisms about Pope Francis about some of his statements, uh, like on, you know, we heard from Ralph Martin last night, and, you know, these in-flight interviews. Um, I like what Dr. Lombardi uh, said uh, today, that he's sort of processing out loud, that sometimes when he's asked a question on the spot, he's sort of thinking it. Uh, and she brought up John Allen saying that, you know, maybe this is a new category of papal statements, papal reflections, just things that are like in-flight interviews. But, you know, let's step back a minute. You know, we, we've, the Catholic Church has always says, we know that Vatican II states that the Church does not claim that the Pope is infallible whenever he speaks. Now, obviously, we don't expect the Pope to say anything heretical. But I think sometimes some people expect more of Pope Francis than of the first Pope, Peter, who has, was known to make some exaggerated statements at times and, and even needed some perhaps fraternal correction like uh, Peter from St. Paul. So, okay, uh, first of all, remember that these, these statements are, are not infallible. We could bring up if people... But the other thing is, uh, I think the positive side of these statements is that they are provocative, and I think that we should also appreciate that we have a pope who's willing to make interviews and off-the-cuff remarks to make the papal office more accessible and approachable to the public and to do Twitter and whatever. There, there are many people who are listening to Pope Francis who have previously written off the Catholic Church. Uh, they like his style. 
Now, some people could say, well, maybe he's confusing more people and driving them away. But I would say that in general, this, this Francis effect is, is at least people are being, many people who have turned off the Catholic Church, as we know, are, are giving him a hearing. And, you know, also that some of the things he says, I think we also have to remember that Jesus did challenge us. You know, Jesus did make people uncomfortable and nervous at times. Um, yeah, sometimes Pope Francis makes us nervous because he does point out the radical demands of the gospel, such as the demand of mercy. Sometimes he does make us uncomfortable when he warns about hypocrisy and rigidity, even though, as Dr. Echevarria said, maybe that's not the biggest problem in the church is sort of over-strictness and legalism. Um, you know, there are some people who need to hear that message. But Pope Francis wants us to see the positive point that, you know, charity and mercy is the key uh, to understanding both the Mosaic law and Jesus's teaching and necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. Pope Francis wants us to see the world in the church, uh, to see the church in the world as a field hospital, a place of refuge and help for those wounded in this battleground of the world, a place where they can experience the mercy of God rather than judgment. Um, again, some people accuse him of stressing mercy at the expense or, or of condoning or seeming to condone sin. Uh, but I think, again, he, he also tells in these stories uh, that, that, that when he actually gets down to concrete instances, you can see the necessity of, of having a pastoral discernment approach. Now, perhaps tomorrow when Father Spitzer talks about the Jesuitical background, you know, when I'm reading Pope Francis sometimes about the confessional, you know, as a church historian, it reminds me of um, the Jesuit and the Jansenist controversy, if you're familiar with that, in the 17th century, where people were accusing the Jesuits of being laxists. And there was the Jansenists who said, he's not strict enough. And of course, the Jesuits were trying to say, we've got to meet people where they're at. So this is not a new <laughs> conflict here. And, and you know, this is sort of an ongoing thing. It's not an easy balance between keeping the law and, and, and yet attracting people to the faith uh, and to the confessional, especially by throwing, uh, by showing mercy. But nowhere does the Pope um, uh, say, that I have seen uh, say that uh, he can give sacramental absolution or advise people to receive Holy Communion when they cannot do so according to church law. I, I mean, people say he, it's not clear, but I, I don't think I've ever heard a clear statement where he actually is advising or counseling something that is strictly contrary to church law. Okay, I guess that's uh, enough on that. Um, I the remedy, though, that uh, if, if we do have a remedy, he, he also is emphasizing openness to the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. Uh, you know, we have, to, we have to be filled with the Spirit who is the love of God poured into our heart, who is also the source of the joy that Pope Francis speaks of so frequently. We see this so clearly in the life of, of uh, St. Francis, his namesake. Um, I'd like to spend a couple minutes on something. My third, I've got th two more points. Third, third point, I'd like to, so we've talked a little bit about mercy, a little bit about his pastoral uh, approach in marriage, and also reminding us to, to value the beautiful positive things he says about uh, the beauty of married life and the high call that is. Uh, the next thing I'd like to talk a little bit is about his view of creation. And I don't think any of our other main speakers have talked about this, so I might spend a couple minutes on this. Um, you know, in this regard, I, I subtitle my talk, 
Pope Francis and St. Francis as prophetic visionaries. And I really think they, they both have a prophetic stand with regard to the gift of the world that God has given us, his creation. Um, St. Francis actually took a prophetic stance against a very influential group of his time, the Cathars, who are sort of like uh, medieval Manichees or Gnostics, who basically saw the created order of the world as something corrupt and to be shunned by truly spiritual people. And, you know, it would have been, that's why groups like St. Francis's group were really suspect because there were so many of these groups that, you know, claimed to be really Catholic but were really having some serious flaws, either anti-hierarchical, really being critical of the affluence of the church, which Francis wasn't. He, he never criticized the church directly. He just set an example. But the other error was basically they were, they were those who were basically saying this material creation is, is corrupt because it, it drags us down and it drags us away from God. Of course, St. Francis was prophetic. He said just the opposite. He gloried in the goodness of the world and of every creature. And of course, Pope Francis names his encyclical letter on, our con on care for our common home, Laudato Si, the words of St. Francis's Canticle of the Creatures, just to say the opening of that, uh, that encyclical letter, Laudato Si, mi Signore, praise be to you, my Lord. And Pope Francis goes on, in the words of this beautiful canticle, St. Francis of Assisi reminds us that our common home is like a sister with whom we share our life, and a beautiful mother who opens her arms to embrace us. Praise be to you, my Lord, through sister, our sister Mother Earth, who sustains and governs us, and who produces various fruit with colored flowers and herbs. In this encyclical, by the way, I went to another wonderful, I, I really learned so much, I'm sure you did today, of many of these concurrent sessions. Another of the sessions, uh, one of our MA graduates, who's now a doctor, Brian Pedraza, was talking about uh, how uh, Pope Francis is seeking, like St. Francis, to restore a sense of wonder before creation. And this is maybe one of the best ways to overcome the atheism, the nihilism of our time, which no longer has become purely, as Archbishop said, pragmatic and utilitarian. So this, even though people think about ecology as being something, you know, some liberal agenda or something, but this is really at the root of the gospel. Whenever I lecture about St. Francis, I say there's sort of the, the St. I've even proposed he be called a, a, a humble doctor of the church because he had this great grasp of the essence of Christian theology. And the three points, creation, um, the incarnation, the crib, and the, and, the, and, the in, and the cross, and the suffering of Christ. So Christ incarnate, Christ suffering. So I say it could be St. Francis, you could sum up his theology as creation, the crib, and the cross. Now, Saint, um, and so therefore, Pope Francis dedicates a whole section uh, on St. Francis of Assisi. And I'd like to share a little of this because I think it's powerful and beautiful. He says, I do not want to write this encyclical without turning to that attractive and compelling figure whose name I took as my guide and inspiration when I was elected Bishop of Rome. I believe that St. Francis is the example par excellence of care for the vulnerable. Notice it's also his mercy and of an integral ecology lived out joyfully and authentically. He is the patron saint of all who study and work in the area of ecology, and he is also much loved by non-Christians. He was particularly concerned for God's creation and for the poor and the outcast. He loved and was deeply loved for his joy, his generous self-giving, his open-heartedness. 
He was a mystic and a pilgrim who lived in simplicity and in wonderful harmony with God, with others, with nature, and with himself. He shows us just how inseparable the bond is between concern for nature, justice for the poor, commitment to society, and interior peace. That's something really to reflect on, how Francis embodies those. He would call creatures, no matter how small, by the name of brother or sister. Such a conviction cannot be written off as, a naive, as naive romanticism, for it affects the choices which determine our behavior. If we approach nature and the environment without this openness to awe and wonder, if we no longer speak the language of fraternity and beauty in our relationship with the world, our attitude will be that of masters, consumers, ruthless exploiters, unable to set limits on their immediate needs. Isn't that why we have all these problems in environment? By contrast, if we feel intimately united with all that exists, then sobriety and care will well, in us, well up spontaneously. The poverty and austerity of St. Francis were no mere veneer of asceticism, but something much more radical, a refusal to turn reality into an object simply to be used and controlled. He goes on, what is more important? St. <coughs> Francis, faithful to scripture, invites us to see nature as a magnificent book, and St. Bonaventure really develops this, in which God speaks to us and grants us a glimpse of his infinite beauty and goodness. And he quotes Wisdom 13.5, to the greatness and the beauty of creatures, one comes to know by analogy their maker. And indeed, quoting Romans 1.20, his eternal power and divinity have been made known through his works since the creation of the world. So I, I, I think this is a powerful tribute to St. Francis, but also sees... Pope Francis sees actually uh, the, the, the love of the creation even, and St. Francis is tying in concern for the poor. It all comes from this uh, sense of the, and, and then of course he talks about human ecology. It's not just the ecology, uh, preserving the ecology of the natural order, but also uh, the, in a sense, the human being, how we fit into this beautiful plan. Okay, so as we, he continues, he calls for a responsible stewardship of God's creation because the earth is, what his phrase, our common home that has been trusted, entrusted to our care. So <clears throat> hopefully we won't see any Pope Francis bird bats since there are no stories of the Pope preaching to larks or wolves as we hear of St. Francis. So instead, and I'm sure he would be scandalized at even the thought, instead the earth, what he wants us to do is start acting as, as he's always concerned with what are we going to do now? Um, the urgent message of Pope Francis is for all people, for each one of us, to take greater responsibility for all that affects the natural environment. Ever practical, this, just a, uh, this past September 1st, uh, he instituted this celebration of the World Day of Prayer for Care of Creation. And in this speech on September 1st, uh, he suggested two new works of mercy to promote the care of our common home. He explains, quote, the Christian life involves the practice of the traditional seven corporal and spiritual works of mercy. Let me propose a complement to the two traditional sets of seven. May the works of mercy also include care for our common home. As a spiritual work of mercy, care for our common home calls for, quote, a grateful contemplation of God's world which allows us to discover in each thing a teaching which God wishes to hand on to us. As a corporal, so that's the contemplative, the awe and the wonder. That's a spiritual work of mercy. As a corporal work of mercy, care for our common home requires, quote, simple daily gestures which break 
with the logic of violence, exploitation, and selfishness and makes itself felt in every action and seeks to build a better world. So Pope Francis adopts St. Francis' appreciation of creation as a reflection of God's goodness and glory. Once again, he makes, a very, makes this very practical. How can we act on this? He went on and said in that talk on September 1st, in light of what is happening to our common home, may the present jubilee of mercy summon the Christian faithful to profound interior conversion, sustained particularly by the sacrament of penance. During this jubilee year, let us learn to implore God's mercy for those sins against creation that we have not hitherto acknowledged and confessed. Let us likewise commit ourselves to take concrete steps toward ecological conversion. Now that'll make people, some people really nervous, ecological. Put it in context. It's part of the full conversion of the Christian to, to see that if I've been hardened or, or just oblivious to what we do with our environment, it says we need, do need a certain type of conversion there, right? Which requires a clear recognition of our responsibility to ourselves, our neighbors, creation, and the creator. Okay, my final theme. I'll try to do this. And, and I wanted to talk a little bit about evangelization. Um, uh, Ralph Martin, Dr. Martin spoke about this eloquently and fully last night. I was reminded of uh, St. Francis had a great evangelistic fervor. You know, he went on that personal mission to convert a Muslim leader. You know, he, he desired either that he convert the Sultan or he be martyred. And that's really what he wanted. And as it turned out, he got neither. Uh, he, uh, because, uh, uh, but he, and by the way, his, his actions there involved on this missionary journey, it involved both words, proclaiming the gospel, and even deeds. He, he challenged sort of a trial by fire uh, that the sultan turned down. But in any case, he didn't convert the, uh, the, this Muslim leader to Christianity, but the, the, the sultan was so impressed by Francis's boldness, but seeing that he was harmless, and also a man of peace, he gave him safe conduct. But the idea that even Francis had a zeal for evangelism, St. Francis, and has this same zeal for evangelization. Um, of course, the phrase that Dr. Martin pointed out is, Pope Francis, in his vision, every Catholic is to exude the joy of the gospel and that all are called to be missionary disciples of Jesus Christ. To do this, we must know Jesus personally. We must pray and grow in our relationship with him. In doing this, we will experience true joy, the joy of the gospel. And some might even attain the holiness of a St. Francis. But remember, St. Francis found perfect joy in being rejected, in suffering, as Jesus was rejected by his own people and experienced abandonment and cruel suffering in his passion. And, you know, um, going to meet people on the periphery or the margins of society, which Pope Francis advocates, is also not an easy or an enjoyable task. Uh, discovering the joy of the gospel for, for Pope Francis comes at the price of sacrificing comfort and sometimes even sacrificing the acceptance and understanding of others. One of the modern beatitudes that Pope Francis lists on November 1st, he has a number of modern beatitudes, but one beatitude is, blessed are those who renounce their own comfort in order to help others. You can't separate that from the joy of the gospel because the joy of the gospel comes from drawing close to Jesus and discovering and carrying out the mission that he has entrusted to each of us 
as his missionary disciples. That's where we'll find that joy of the gospel. Um, of course, um, Pope, I'm going to skip over a little here because Dr. Martin last night really spelled out very well how Pope Francis' teaching on evangelization and the mission of Christians has been so well. It's building on Pope Paul VI, Evangelii Nuziandi of 1975. It's building on Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul II's Redemptoris Missio. And of course, it builds on uh, the beginnings of the church, the Acts of the Apostles, and throughout Christian history, where we have the witness of the church's missionaries, some of which suffered martyrdom as the crown of their efforts. I mentioned the boldness of St. Francis when he went off to convert the Muslim leader. Uh, this word boldness, parhasia in Greek, is one of St. Pope Francis's favorite words for how we are to carry out our mission and proclaim the gospel with our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, parhasia, uh, just from Evangelii, Nunci uh, um, I'm sorry, Evangelii Gaudium, chapter 5, the whole chapter called Spirit-Filled Evangelizers. It's my favorite section. Spirit-Filled Evangelizers mean evangelizers fearlessly open to the working of the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, the Spirit made the apostles go forth from themselves and turn them into heralds of God's wondrous deeds, capable of speaking to each person in his or her own language. The Holy Spirit also grants the courage to proclaim the newness of the gospel with boldness, parhasia in every time and place, even when it meets with opposition. Let us call upon him today, firmly rooted in prayer, for without prayer, all our activity risks being fruitless and our message empty. That's the prayer, poverty, joy. Prayer must be there it's for the God to give us this grace. Jesus wants evangelizers who proclaim the good news, not only with words, but above all, by a life transfigured by God's presence. Now, one might ask the practical question, and we'll end with some practical notes. How do you get Catholics to even want to become spirit-filled evangelizers, to quote that, who are, quote, fearlessly open to the working of the Holy Spirit? It appears that many Catholics really have little or no interest in this. And to be frank, even the word spirit-filled evangelizers is very foreign or even repulsive to most Catholics. If you heard this on your Sunday sermon from your pastor, uh, that you're called to be spirit-filled evangelizers, a lot of people would say, <laughs> that's not for me. But how might Catholics grow in, this, in desiring this sort of boldness to witness to their faith openly? I hear as if in response uh, what Pope Francis says in, in Evangelii Gaudium 261, he has the same longing. How I long to find the right words to stir up enthusiasm for a new chapter of evangelization full of fervor, joy, generosity, courage, boundless love and attraction. Yet I realize that no words of encouragement will be enough unless the fire of the Holy Spirit burns in our hearts. You know, words aren't going to do it. It's got to be God. Some Catholics need an explanation of why we need to evangelize and what makes this possible. Pope Francis explains the primary reason for evangelizing is the love of Jesus which we have received the experience of salvation, which urges us to even greater love of him. Why do we evangelize? Because we love Jesus, and we have received his love. Well, what if the person doesn't have this burning love of Jesus or an experience of salvation? Pope Francis addresses this a line later. He says, if we do not feel an intense desire to share this love, we need to pray insistently that he will once more touch our hearts. We need to implore his grace daily, 
asking him to open our cold hearts and shake up our lukewarm and superficial existence. And then in the, very, in the beginning of Evangelii Gaudium, uh, actually Ralph Martin quoted this last night, but it's so good, where he invites the church. I invite all Christians everywhere at this very moment to a renewed personal encounter with Jesus Christ, or at least an openness to letting him encounter them. I ask all of you to do this unfailingly each day. No one should think that this invitation is not meant for him or her, since no one is excluded from the joy brought by the Lord. The Lord does not disappoint those who take this risk. Whenever we take a step toward Jesus, we come to realize that he is already there, waiting for us with open arms. And if you've read Pope Francis, this is one of his big things, that God is always before you, waiting with the open arms. Now is the time to say to Jesus, that prayer Ralph said last night, Lord, I have let myself be deceived. In a thousand ways I have shunned your love. Yet here once more, I, I, here I am once more to renew my covenant with you. I need you. Save me once again, Lord. Make me once more, or perhaps for the first time, into your redeeming embrace, unquote. So we've got to invite people. If you don't know Jesus, you know, he's waiting for you. He's reaching out for you. Just go to him every day. Ask, Lord, are you there? You know, you say, they, they say you love, you, your love is so great. Let me, let me experience you and your love. The beginning of the renewal, the reawakening of Catholic evangelization, I believe, the first step toward Catholics becoming who they're intended to be, Jesus said what we're intended to be. We're called to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth, right? Pope Francis uses the words missionary disciples. But to do this was somehow to get Catholics to ask, to seek, to want to encounter Jesus Christ more deeply in a personal way and in whatever way God wills that for that to come about. Now, how this, come about, how this comes about will differ. You know, people are touched by different things. Maybe it'll be some inspired preaching they hear. Maybe by someone's personal witness or testimony. Maybe a, by a radio or a television program. Maybe by attending a Life in the Spirit seminar or an Alpha program or a Curcio or another type of retreat. However it happens, this, this it, this being a personal encounter with Jesus and an opening to the working and the power of the Holy Spirit, I believe it must happen if the Catholic Church is to reawaken and start converting the culture around us instead of being evangelized and converted by the culture. And converted to what? Into either a, culture, a comfortable complacency or an attitude of resignation or despair. You know, thinking that there's nothing we can do to change the world in our culture or just despairing of any meaning in life at all. That's the alternative. It's hope or despair. So, but... Uh, to, to give the positive alternative, they, they have to have this encounter. If Jesus is, you know, that despair, if this little band of Jesus' followers while he was on earth had thought this way about what's the use, the Christian religion would have disappeared long before the end of the first century. Pope Francis describes how this life-changing evangelization must come about today, and uh, he, I'm going to skip this quote, but uh, this explains one more thing, and I'll close with this. Um, how, Pope Francis is also doing something else besides, um, you know, presenting the teaching on this and encouraging people to encounter the Lord and open to the Spirit. He's also encouraging every spiritually vibrant movie, movement and group within the church to just press on. If they're doing something well, he's encouraging them, keep on doing what you're doing and even intensify your efforts 
to advance the evangelistic and missionary effort of the church. And I think he would say that to you today. Many of you here are involved in many important ministries, outreaches, and he would say, good, amen, keep on doing it. Don't lose heart, don't give up, even though the progress seems small. Uh, For example, you know, in the charismatic movement, um, which is probably one of the largest international Catholic spiritual re- renewal movements. Pope Francis recently urged this movement to go and spread the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The reason is evident. The renewal of Christian initiation, which is what that phrase is about, and in the power of the Holy Spirit is essential for evangelization and for other forms of active participation in the life and mission of the church. So um, we also have the great example of the saints who have inspired so many religious communities, like our own friend friars here, um, through the imitating Christ in poverty and humility um, by their example. Uh, there are so many ways that Pope Francis would, would look around and say, press on, because you're, you are part of this great evangelistic missionary effort. Um, and of course, in, he has many humorous ways that have been mentioned today of pointing out how Catholics could become more effective and credible evangelizers you know, his remarks that some Catholics resemble sour pusses or pickled peppers more than joyful disciples, that Catholics often look in ch- going to church or in church more like they're in or going to a funeral. You know, if someone takes offense at these when the Pope says this, I think he, they either don't have a sense of humor or perhaps the comments are striking a little too close to home. <laughs> so, to conclude... Pope Francis, like St. Francis, doesn't fit easily into any category or mold. Part of the grace of these prophetic visionaries, which makes them prophetic, in a sense, is their originality and spontaneity, which also has its rough edges. But they're trying to respond to the initiatives of the Holy Spirit as they they prayerfully discern that. St. Francis has attracted followers to a way of life that diverged from the longstanding mold of religious life, monasticism, by living and proclaiming the gospel in the midst of society and not in a cloister separated from the world. This was a radical thing in the 13th century. The only model of religious life before Francis pretty much was monasticism with some maybe minor exceptions. Pope Francis in some ways is breaking the mold of past papal activity and behavior. Much of it has to do also with getting closer to God's people It would be easy for us as theologians or concerned Catholics in focusing on the way Pope Francis expresses himself at times in an exaggerated way to miss the points he's making, the reason for his concern, as many of Jesus' critics miss the point of the importance of his message because of its unusual novelty. I, I think of some of the sayings of Jesus at the end of today's gospel. What was it? Where the body is, there let the vultures gather. You know, I think sometimes Jesus said things that sort of seemed a little cryptic. And I'm not, no, Pope Francis is not Jesus, but he is his vicar on earth, chosen by the Holy Spirit for this moment in history, just as other popes and saints like St. Francis were raised up by God for their times and circumstances. So let us pray for our Holy Father that as he responds and we would hear all the positive and challenging things he's calling us to to live the gospel more fully. Amen. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.